0: Like a backstage pass to the world of fly fishing travel, this is Waypoints, the podcast of destination angling. News and events, helpful travel tips, destination profiles, great stories, and expert advice from some of the most seasoned and experienced names in fishing travel. Waypoints is brought to you by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures, the industry's number one specialty travel company for the very best insider knowledge, logistical support, and trip preparation. Freshwater or saltwater, International or domestic, Yellow Dog has you covered for your next fishing adventure. And now, your Waypoint's host, Yellow Dog founder and director, Jim Klug.
1: It's hard to fish without water, which is why river access is such a huge issue for any passionate angler. Stream access rights and regulations in the United States are largely governed at the state level, which means that rules and regulations vary throughout the country. Depending on where exactly you're fishing, the laws dealing with how you can enter a riverbed or step into the water can be wildly different. The issue is a complicated one, and with a growing number of anglers, a general increase in the popularity of fishing, and a modern political climate that now seems to focus more on combat and less on consensus and common sense, the issue of stream access has dramatically heated up throughout the country. In the western U.S., oftentimes the epicenter for stream access battles, access issues date all the way back to when the West was first being settled. At that time, public river and stream access was largely a concern of commercial trappers, railroads, and loggers, as creeks and rivers were primarily seen as key components for commerce. From accessing beaver and wildlife habitat for trapping, to moving supplies to construct railroads, to floating freshly harvested timber downstream, river regulations were initially linked to, and largely based around, commercial activity. This was long before the days of fly fishermen, drift boats, and weekend floaters. But the ability to actually send logs or commercial watercraft down a stream came to define the term navigability for access purposes. And both the term and the concept are still widely used by states today to dictate whether a stream should technically be open for public access or can be privately controlled by property owners. Some states have determined that if a stream is technically navigable, then it is indeed a public resource. If it is not navigable, then the actual ownership of a stream bed is in the hands of the underlying landowner. In the western U.S., some states, like Montana, have determined that streams and rivers, including the stream bed, are all accessible up to the high water mark and therefore considered a public recreational resource. In Montana, anyone can legally wade a river that cuts through private property under one condition. They cannot step above the ordinary high water mark. They must enter the water from a public access point or with the permission of an adjoining private landowner. Under no circumstances are they allowed to trespass on private property to reach the water. Montana's progressive stream access law, perhaps the strongest of any state in the country, has been routinely challenged by politicians, prominent landowners, and organizations with agendas to privatize public lands and other government-controlled environmental resources. While to date these challenges have all failed, the efforts to erode Montana's access laws continue. In other states, stream access laws are, well... Kind of all over the place. Both Colorado and Wyoming warn that anglers and floaters risk trespassing if they attempt to float a piece of water and so much as drop anchor or even touch a boulder or scrape the stream bed with their raft or drift boat. In these states, while the water is considered a public resource, the actual stream beds are owned by the landowner. The general public may float upon navigable streams, but it is considered trespassing if you so much as touch the gravel or any rocks in the stream bed. In Idaho, a river is deemed navigable and therefore publicly accessible as long as you can float a six-inch diameter log down it. Once again, a policy left over from the early days of Western settlement. There are those that believe Idaho has the strongest, most angler-friendly stream access laws in the country. In New Mexico, natural streams and their streambeds are a public resource and generally accessible. Private landowners can own the streambed but may not block public access. Conversely, no person is allowed to trespass on privately owned land to access a stream or river. Utah, well, Utah remains in stream access flux. The state's Supreme Court ruled in 2008 that the public could legally touch all stream beds regardless of streambed ownership. That victory was short lived, however, and in 2010, the Utah legislature essentially reversed the court's decision, passing a bill to restrict access to stream beds on private lands. And while float access is still possible on some rivers via public easement, Utah's laws do not allow for any incidental touching while floating, i.e., hitting rocks or scraping a boat over a skinny gravel bar unless this specifically occurs during portage around a dangerous obstruction. Super confusing. And finally, in Oregon, most navigable streams are considered to be public recreational resources accessible to anglers up to the high water mark. With streams that are deemed non-navigable, property owners can actually own the stream bed. So to say that stream access laws are confusing is a massive understatement. This is especially true when you consider that the technical definitions of terms like high watermark, stream bed, and navigability can actually change from state to state. What is crystal clear, however, is the fact that the overall river and stream access issue is a contentious one. And while court rulings in states such as Montana, Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah seeking to clarify stream access laws have recently been issued, the debate, and in many cases the court fights, will continue. And this is only heating up as many Western states continue to experience population surges that stress our natural resources. Throw in a crazy level of what we call wealth concentration relocations, which basically means out-of-towners with large amounts of money moving into rural areas. And the complaints about the haves and the have-nots along scenic and productive rivers and streams continue to grow. As more wealthy transplants many of whom oppose any sort of public access, move into rural areas, Longtime locals face the very real possibility of losing public access not through some sudden dramatic showdown, but through long-game legislation, slow bureaucratic processes, and bills and lawsuits designed to quietly chip away at public water access. So once again, why should anglers care? Well, Many in the fly fishing industry and the vast majority of people from the conservation world would say that the crux of the entire issue is this. When people have access to rivers for fishing, they are motivated to protect and restore them. And when you have progressive, strong public access laws, you usually end up with the best trout fishing. Again, think Montana and Idaho. Strong access creates more anglers and subsequently more voices fighting for protections ecosystem enhancements, healthy waters, wild fish, and the continued recreational opportunities for river lovers. And so there it is, right? The story of river access made simple in less than five minutes, right? Well, not exactly. It's a complicated one. In the midst of the continuing heated battle for public access and fishing rights throughout the U.S., a new company has recently emerged with what they see as a unique solution for angler access With their model, individual anglers can secure river access to private property through an Airbnb-like pay-to-play platform called Rare Waters. The business model of Rare Waters is based on working with property owners, primarily and initially in the U.S. West, who are willing, for a fee, to grant access to anglers looking for both solitude and exclusive access. To be clear, Rare Waters is not buying up properties and converting public waters into private waters. The land they focus on and feature is already privately owned. And through their model, the landowners can make some side money while anglers fish their property and oftentimes camp or stay in an existing building. Now that said, we as an industry know that a lot of anglers have very strong opinions on public access issues as well as the pay-to-play or pay-to-access scenario. I'm joined for today's episode by R.J. Hosking and Brendan Stuckey, two key players in the Rare Waters organization. Brendan is the founder of Rare Waters, a reformed corporate executive whose passion for fly fishing spawned his idea of developing a unique online marketplace for fly fishing enthusiasts. R.J. Hosking is the CEO of Rare Waters, overseeing the sales, marketing, and business development efforts for the company. Prior to joining the project, RJ held various roles within the outdoor and experiential industries at organizations like Zamp Solar, Dometic, and with Airbnb during the early startup days. Recently, he worked at Patagonia, where his experience included overseeing the fly fishing product line. Brendan and RJ, welcome to Waypoints. Thank you both for being here to talk about your company and to share your story. It's good to have you guys here in the studio.
2: Yeah, appreciate thank you.
1: it. Well, we're going to talk about Rare Waters and what you guys have going on with the offerings. We're also going to be talking a little bit about the larger issues of stream access, the privatization of rivers and streams, and the future of access throughout the country and specifically in the U.S. West. But before we get into the heavy stuff, uh, you know, all these complicated topics, uh, I want to hear a little bit about you guys. I want to hear about your individual backgrounds and how you each found your way to the sport of fly fishing as well as to the business of fly fishing. Let's uh, let's start with you, Brandon.
2: Yeah, sure. I appreciate you having us. Um, I guess my background was predominantly in, at least on the fishing side of things, was predominantly in conventional fishing and, and hunting out in the East Coast uh, in North Carolina. So a lot of white-tailed deer, a lot of pheasant hunting, uh, a lot of bass fishing and offshore fishing. And I moved to Colorado for work 11 or 12 years ago, Um, got a job at a medical device company and was doing mergers and acquisitions and corporate strategy type work, which burnt me out and didn't really enjoy the people I was working with. Long story short, fly fishing became a therapeutic outlet for me. I think it's a therapeutic outlet for most people. And, yeah, that's how I got into it. I was probably seven or eight years ago, was fishing deckers for the first time, caught a fish, and became obsessed with it. That was Uh, it. That was it. The rest is history. Yep. (laughs) And then immediately started fishing 30 or 40 days a year. And, um, yeah, long story short, uh, I got kind of stressed out with how crowded public watersheds were becoming and that's essentially how rare waters came to be i figured that there's got to be a better way to do this and i think a lot of anglers they want to catch fish but we're also chasing something bigger i use the word serenity a lot to kind of describe fly fishing and uh, getting away from crowds and connecting with nature and that's hard to do with you know dozens of anglers up and down the river every 20 or 30 yards so that was how the rare waters idea came to be
1: well, we're, I wanna drill deeper on that in, in just a couple minutes because sure. I think there's a lot to talk about there. Um, but RJ, let's hear a little bit about your background and, and how you kind of found your way to the business of fly fishing.
3: Yeah, I'm originally from Bozeman, so it's kind of fun to be be back here hanging out with you guys. Um, and fishing has just been in my DNA. Did it with my dad in the early days. We moved to Northern California, up near Tahoe, uh, where I grew up. And it's just been a part of our family and what we did. Uh, and really fell in love with it. Uh, really took a real deep, big, deep dive in my, right, right around my college college years. Uh, really got into fly fishing, started traveling a lot, um, pursuing pursuing fish, and ultimately ended up kind of landing a gig at Patagonia. And that was really a passion passion project for for me. Um, long story short, uh, was there for for quite a long time, sixteen, seventeen years and ended up kind of the latter part of my career at Patagonia uh, running the fly fishing product line. So anything that had the Fitzroy trout uh, was my baby. And it was really fun, incredible experience. And then got connected uh, with Rare Waters and Brendan uh, through the grapevine, um, I ended up leaving Patagonia right before kind of the COVID pandemic and all the craziness that happened in the world, moved up to Bend, Oregon to be closer up into the mountains and be closer to some water and uh, walk, walk through very similar to what Brendan uh, went through, just going through an MA in the overland um, outdoor industry. And kind of opened my eyes to a different side of business. And ultimately, with my love for fishing and just my passion for fly fishing, um, ended up finding my way back into the industry uh, a couple of years ago. And got connected with Brendan through a venture capitalist group that was looking to invest in this small startup in the fly fishing space. And they were looking for experts in the field. And so they reached out to me. And I, I said, sure, I'd be happy to you know, give my opinion, my humble opinion on, on a company. And as soon as they said that they were invested in a small company called rare waters. I looked into it and I was just like, Oh my gosh, what is this? And why didn't I think of it? was kind of my (laughs) first initial reaction. And I just gave my expert opinion. um, It said, I think this thing has a lot of legs and I think it could be something that can truly be beneficial in the industry. Um, And I just think, you know as a it's a total industry disruptor and i'm very intrigued so as soon as my time in consulting was done i ended up getting in contact with brendan and just started having a conversation it was more just out of curiosity and then one thing led to another met the board members and jumped on board uh to help um on kind of the sweat equity side and we're sitting here today and that was about a year and a half ago so yep. well let me ask you guys this for for
1: our listeners that have not heard of Rare Waters before. How would you kind of quickly describe the business model of Rare Waters for those that know nothing about it? What what is the
2: business? Sure. I mean, simply put, we provide day use access for fly fishing and camping experiences. So, similar to Airbnb, Granted, I don't really like that analogy, but it's the easiest way for people to wrap their head around how we go about providing these experiences. If you, your family, and friends want to go access a ranch for a day or a weekend or a week or, shoot, even a month, (laughs) we'll we'll allow that. Um, But if you want to go have that special experience away from crowds, get that deep connection with the outdoors, that serenity feeling, you can pay for a trespass fee, essentially, to go access this ranch and have that stretch of water to yourself.
1: Well, it's pretty simple. And let me ask you this. You know, we've seen previous projects and offerings that offer quote you know kind of private water access or exclusive access Uh, we've seen all this before in in different iterations but rare waters is not a membership based platform or a private club that commands an initiation fee or monthly dues as I understand it with your platform anglers can pay literally by the day if they just want to go out one time with no upfront fees Uh, they can use it as you just said Brendan they can use it once or they could use it you know time and time again, but there's no additional membership fees or dues that are associated with it,
3: correct? Correct. That's, yeah, that's correct.
2: Yeah, just like booking a hotel room. We don't care who you are, where you come from, as long as you're a responsible land steward, you treat the land like you own it. Um, anybody can come fish our properties
1: and and to be clear, you've partnered with landowners so you guys don't necessarily own these properties or are you buying them up and privatizing them rather you're working with people that already have private property you're partnering with them to be able to offer it. How many to date properties do you guys kind of have in the rare waters catalog
3: yeah so um it's that part's super exciting, because we, when I joined Rare Waters, we were roughly around 21, 23 properties, uh, primarily in Colorado. And within a short period of time in the last 10 months, we're actually just shy of 60 properties right now. And we've opened up, kind of unlocked the West. Um, you know, we're, we have properties in California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, uh, obviously Colorado and so forth. And so it's been massive growth on the supply side of things. Um, and what's really special about it being a two sided marketplace, similar to the likes of Airbnb and Hipcamp and VRBO, is is we have you know we're essentially running two businesses at the same time where we have this long standing landowner partnerships. We don't own any of the properties, so just like Uber doesn't you know own the deal or VRBO, VRBO, you know the largest hotel industry you know Airbnb does um, they own you know zero properties. Um, we we follow a very similar uh, Business model, and that we come alongside and really partner in a long term partnership with these landowners um, that happen that just happen to have these incredible pieces of property that people have access to fish where they've never had access before, and rare waters is simply just unlocking gates and doors for folks and anglers to fish.
1: Yeah, and so. and oftentimes these these property owners, you know, in the intro I kind of went through some of the differences with <clears throat> the states when it comes to access and, you know, access, uh, stream access laws with regards to being able to fish waters versus, you know, stream bank navigability, all these terms. Yeah. Um but oftentimes, the landowners, they don't necessarily own the water. They don't own the river, but they own the access. And that's what this is really all about. Um, even if in a state like Montana, where, let's say, it's on the Gallatin or the yep. Madison, you know, anyone could technically go in and fish there as long as they're uh, within the, the high water mark. Um, but um, what you guys are offering is, hey, rather than hiking in or trying to float or you know walking along the stream, you can drive through what is normally a locked gate. Park on their property, oftentimes even camp there if that's part of the agreement with the landowner. And it just makes it really easy and direct and offers that higher degree of solitude. 100%. Yeah. Yep. Ease, ease of access. Ease of access. Yep. That's really what it's about. 100%. And, you know, I know, Brandon, you said you don't really like the Airbnb model. It's one that everybody can kind of wrap their head around, but. For me, when I first learned about this, it was much more like the hip camp model. And this is a, a amazing platform that I personally first discovered for my own use during COVID when mm-hmm. I was out you know with my family. We were driving through the West, um, not flying, you know, we we're in the car, going out in camping lot, um, kind of came across this. I was like, what a great concept. Somebody's got a farm or you know, a ranch or just a cool piece of secluded property. You can pay a fee to drive in, camp there for the night. You're not in a campground with a hundred and fifty giant Winnebagos. You've got access Access to this this solitude and um, this seems like a similar kind of concept hundred uh, percent it is yeah
2: yeah well, and I, I like i said I, I think it's really important to continue talking about this i mean we I, whether you're hunting fishing camping hiking i think everybody is chasing something a little bit bigger than you know harvesting an elk or netting a trout and solitude is a big part of that and that deep connection with nature is a big part of what we want to provide um you know our our mission is to spread the power out power the outdoors and inspiration to conserve it and we believe that everybody's just better when they're unplugged from their phone they're not sitting behind a computer they're just outside enjoying their their time with their family and friends in the outdoors so That's a big part of what we believe in and what we're trying to provide.
1: That's well said. So let me ask you, the average cost to fish these properties, um, the 50, 60 that you have so far, um, if I'm interested in booking, what am I paying per day for a rod fee or an access fee?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. Um, So... This is the beauty of Rare Waters, that we are an industry disruptor. We're not a typical club or membership that can often range from 1000 to $500,000, right? We, what, we're, what, what we do different in our space is we provide affordable, inclusive access, and our prices are crazy affordable in terms of, you know, the average, the average rod fee per day is about $150. And if you want to camp, we generally charge um, ballpark about $50 per vehicle, um, you know, and that, that's the cost it you know, play a day on the, on the golf course or uh, a day on the ski hill, you know, like it's a very, very affordable, very approachable experience that we get to provide.
1: Well, let me, let me turn the tables a little bit here, just so we can make this kind of an interesting conversation, all yeah. right? So critics of the pay-to-fish model could argue that in many Western US regions, Montana, Colorado, Idaho, for example, the public, pays for the fish, they pay for the water, and they pay for the overall resource management. So when portions of a river, and again, this isn't necessarily your business model, but it's, you know, it's a privatization question, right? When portions of a river that benefit from all of these publicly funded resources are now private, is it fair for the public to pay for these things, especially considering that, A, people may not be able to use the resource, uh, and B, if a landowner or business entity now is profiting off of those resources through a model
2: like this i'd say that's a it's something i'm very familiar with and passionate about and i i think that there's a general misconception that a publicly uh, funded organization is taking care of a watershed as much if not more than a private landowner is Um, There are plenty of organizations and and case studies about this topic that uh, I'm involved with and that I've read about. And I do agree that the government, uh, state, and federal invest dollars into taking care of natural resources. There's no question about that. And I appreciate what they're doing, whether or not they're allocating funds the right way to ensure that things are – getting taken care of the right way is a different question. That, that's a whole different podcast, a whole right different, there. Yeah, that's a whole different podcast. Um, but I, I know dozens of landowners who, who have invested uh, six to seven figures of their own personal capital into taking care of their quote-unquote private stretch of water, whether that's in Montana and it's not technically private or it's in Colorado where it is technically private. Um, and unfortunately, what happens is a folks have this misunderstanding of who's taking care of the watershed and the riparian habitat. Uh, but B new Mexico is a great example of where the stream access laws just got overturned. There really wasn't a lot of thought into how that should be managed from a conservation perspective. And we know of a landowner who invested seven figures into his own stretch of water. As soon as that stream access law got overturned to where anybody from the public could access his stretch of water, um, the fishery was completely depleted within six months, and it was because people were showing up with spinners, and they took 20 fish home, and they weren't really concerned about the conservation aspect of things. Whereas before, that landowner was able to go catch 40 fish on dry flies every day he went out there. Um, so we I, we don't personally have any issues with uh, stream access laws being overturned whatever, we're in a democracy, right? The government's going to decide what's going to get done and, and what should be legal and not state on a state-by-state state cases, uh, a state-by-state state basis, rather. Um, and, you know, I, frankly, I think it's quite silly that if you're in Wyoming, for example, uh, you're floating down the North Platte River and you can't anchor on this river that's 300 yards wide. That's, that's silly. I mean, come on. Um, but at the same time, I do think it's important for folks to understand that there are a lot of landowners who invest a lot of money into taking care of their watersheds. And there's a trickle down effect up and downstream that on public access points that get, that reap the benefits of that too. Um, So anyway, I, I hear, I understand, appreciate and respect the, the varying opinions on this, but I do think it's important to level set on how much money actually gets invested by private landowners into trout habitat And then on the flip side of things, you know, I, another thing that I I think is kind of interesting, I'm part of a working group that is solving not only for fishing access collaborations with national wildlife Federation, Theodore Roosevelt conservation partnership, Rocky mountain elk, TU, and then a bunch of private landowners. Um, you know, the, the access side of things is a very contentious, uh, debate, but, a lot of the folks on the advocacy side of that, uh, or who are supporting the public landowner types, they don't understand what it takes to cost or to run and manage a ranch, and it's not cheap. And most ranches don't make money. It's a long-term real estate play. Um, so you know, if we're able to come alongside and help landowners and ranchers make a little bit of money to pay some bills, that's a really big deal. Um, and it helps them kind of keep the farm and the family. It helps the local economies. Uh, and that's something I'm pretty passionate about. I feel like I'm rambling. Am I, is that's this making okay. sense? <laughs> that, that's no. what we're here for is, right. to, is to have these
1: <laughs> discussions. So no, that's, I think that's good. And it actually segues into an, an another question that, that's very much related. And that is, you know, today in the realm, of, the realm of outdoor recreation, you know, I think it's safe to say that the enabling effect of technology, right, these days, it has created easy access to much more detailed information on where to fish, where to hunt, where to get outside. Things have become a lot easier to figure out. You know, Nowadays, there's an app for it, whether it's Onyx or whatever, you can kind of get on there and, and really decipher quickly what it would take you otherwise, You know, prior to this years to figure out on your own, just by going out and exploring and knocking on doors and meeting people and establishing relationships. Now there's apps for all this. So the, you know, kind of off the grid type stuff that was so protected and kind of valued by by serious anglers or hunters or outdoorsmen for so many years is now kind of out there for the masses through a lot of these apps. Um, you know, there's little doubt that something that exists in, in the public realm, even if it was kind of unknown, now a lot more people know about it in a lot larger numbers. And some adverse effects of this, you know, have, have caused Overcrowding and I would say unsustainable pressure on sites that some would argue had previously been off the radar, right? I mean that's kind of what we're dealing with in the West and and back to your points, Brendan. There's a lot more people doing it, a lot yep. more people getting out there, and, and it's an issue that is only going to continue to be contentious and be more of a factor really
3: everywhere. Yeah, and I you know and I think you're I think you're spot on there, Jim. I I would say one of the things that we You know, one of the solutions that Rare Waters actually brings to the table in respect to that on the conservation front is that if an angler has an opportunity to spend $150 and go fish with him and buddies or family um, on one of our properties, that's one less or two less or three less, four less people on that public watershed. Um, So there is actually a conservation play that if we're enabling and allowing access for anglers to go fish some of these properties that we have on our portfolio it actually takes a lot of less pressure off the riparian habitat and the fishery of those public watersheds and in fact you know we're both brendan and i we're huge proponents of public water like don't get us wrong as as much as we are with um you know providing access for for properties and some of these watersheds have never been accessed before. It's kind of a win-win on both sides. So, so not only do we, you know, provide these amazing spaces and these uh, super special spots to catch some amazing trout or just have a great experience, um, you know, looking up at the stars and or, or whatever, you know, around a campfire with your close friends and family. You know, we're we're able to help in the larger picture, you know, and working with said landowners as well um, that want to improve their watersheds, you know, like rare waters, like we're not experts in the conservation front, but we know the right people who are, you know, rare waters uh, this year in 2023 was actually the industry partner of the year for for Child Unlimited. Um, So so we can come alongside and help some of these landowners that want to improve their watersheds and we're just super big proponents, it's just in our DNA. uh, and so forth. So,
1: okay. So let, let me play devil's advocate one more time here. Okay. So you guys plan to grow the business. Let's say this thing gets huge, right? And it's it's you know a home run all over the west, and you've really bumped up the number of properties and and the access that you're offering for people that want to pay for that. Um, it means adding obviously more waters, more access. And if more and more landowners start to participate and potential access continues to be more difficult, whether it's the ability to go and knock on a door and go to a place that you used to go or, it, you know, it just, you know, the, the gates are, are locked even tighter, essentially. What, in your opinion, are the impacts of that? And, and I guess, you know, we can get back to the fact that we all know that privatization doesn't really go in reverse, right? Once you go down that path these landowners begin to use this model, the likelihood of more privatization, be it with adjacent landowners or more area waters, is likely to increase, wouldn't you say?
2: Potentially, but that's a good segue into a thought I just had. Um, You know, a lot of these landowners, you you brought up the government kind of helping fund natural resource conservation. Um, Unfortunately, there's just so much that the the government can do. Um they're limited with resources, they're limited with capital. And I can assure you that the landowner who lives on that particular ranch is gonna take better care of that stretch of water than any government organization will because they they live they've lived there for sometimes generations or they bought it and it's their special haven. Um but yeah, I mean to answer your question that could become a challenge, but it's not our mission, it's not our MO, it's not our value set. I mean, we're, we're very value-driven, we're very inclusive. Um, you know, we, we don't believe in the European model. Like I mentioned to you earlier, we think it's silly that you can't anchor in the middle of the North Platte River in Wyoming. Um, but the point is, uh, you know, the, the government doesn't do a very good job of incentivizing landowners. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big upland bird hunter, and you know the incentives you get for letting your your field grow with CRP grass are pretty pathetic, quite frankly. And they don't even cover the fuel it costs to mow the <laughs> the, the grass down. So, um, you know, incentivizing landowners the right way, whether that's through a company like Rare Waters or through uh, a, a government organization is i think a big question that needs to be answered and we see ourselves as a solution to the problem to allow these landowners to make some money to take care of the habitat which again has an up and downstream impact on public public access points so i don't know if that answers your question but um, that's kind of where my head goes with that
1: well, the rare waters business model, and I know, Brendan, you said this earlier, it's like Airbnb is what allows people to wrap their head around the concept of it. You don't love it, but it's an easy way to kind of explain it. Uh, a lot of people that live in mountain towns have seen kind of the negative impacts, speaking of Airbnb specifically, and similar platforms, and, and what those impacts have had on their communities. You know, fishing-related towns such as Island Park, Idaho, West Yellowstone, Montana, areas near Glacier National Park, even right here in Bozeman, are all dealing with this kind. Kind of Airbnb question, and we've seen a lot of negative fallout from residents that results. Now, again, that's a different platform than what you guys are talking about, but kind of a similar concept with the Airbnb. I guess my question is, are you concerned that this business model might result in the same type of negative feedback when anglers, let's say, who may have had access to pieces of water, you know, prior agreements in place maybe they lose that knock on the door access or now they're told they need to pay to access the same waters that maybe they've been fishing for years any thoughts on that
3: i i I guess i first to say just to make it very clear um rare waters doesn't own these properties right we come alongside and partner with landowners that currently already have the property whether it's been in a family trust for years through generations or um you know just like working ranch hand or working ranch families that you know just happen to have an incredible stretch of water running through their property um i totally understand the airbnb dilemma especially in places like you know um Beautiful spots like Bozeman and, uh, you know, across the states, across the West, and the impact it has on real estate prices and all the negative things that come to it, especially for those who are local and seeing their towns kind of get transformed uh, with often inflated prices and making it, you know, not affordable for, for, you know, the middle class folk and the people that are, you know, putting their time in and living in these communities rare waters is not about that we're not looking to try to privatize more land we're not looking to buy a bunch of property and lock it down and create clubs and memberships that is not our model at all if anything we're we're the antithesis of that we are actually just allowing say said families and landowners that have had these properties for generations you know i mean there's often a belief that landowners are you know often like rich billionaires and that's often not the case especially in states like here where you have get you know some beautiful pieces of property that have just been handed down and if we can come alongside and help supplement the income to pay for property taxes or road maintenance or pay for a ranch hand to manage a property instead of it going to sale you know probate sale or some trust sale um then it's it's a huge huge win for the landowner and for an angler that wants to access it and we're you know the the whole idea of, you know, that we're going to I mean, you mentioned and I haven't really thought about it this way, but I am not too concerned that people are going to buy a bunch of multimillion dollar pieces of land to further privatize and get the income from rare waters for people to access like that's you know i that's I, a lot I, of 150 day run yeah justify yeah, the purchase not, yeah. i i haven't thought about that as like <laughs> i guess it could theoretically impact but that's not where people's heads are at we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna move the needle to that point um we can make a significant different difference for a lot of you know working families that have these ranches but but that we're not a threat in that in that regard. Like say, folks are investing in Airbnb, is it kind of inflate in real estate prices? If that makes sense.
1: No, it absolutely does. And 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 thanks for that that. Uh that differentiation, I think that's important. But yeah. I'm going I'm to do this right now. I, in kind of putting together some of the materials for the show, I was reading a bunch of stuff online, not just about rare waters, but going back to a lot of the history of um, different, you know, sporting clubs and membership type platforms. So I'm going to throw a couple arguments out here, all right, just for the sake of conversation. Some are pro, some are con. Um, but uh, the first argument, and and I'll start with a quote from our buddy Kirk Dieter at Angling Trade, because I thought this was an interesting quote, and he Dieter. said, Dieter. We we all know Kirk. Uh, His quote is, I think there's a special place in hell reserved for people who would take public fishing waters, privatize them, build high fences around them and grant access to the ultra wealthy for a healthy price. End quote. Now, we've seen this in the past with with a number of different membership clubs. We see it today. I mean, there's projects like Victory Ranch in Utah, the Home Waters Club in Pennsylvania. There was uh, the the infamous Donnie Beavers Spring Ridge Club in Pennsylvania. They tried to cordon off a section of the fabled Little Junietta. Um, I don't think that worked. um, But I guess what would you say to people who hear about rare waters and they're like, ah, we've, we've heard this story before. It's just another one of these. They're going to put up fences. They're going to keep people out. Um, it, people who would lump you guys in with some of these current or past efforts of privatization. I know you've kind of answered that, but I think it's an important argument, and I want to throw that back out there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I know Kirk really well, um, and him and I have had this conversation a couple of times and he's actually in favor of what we're doing at rare waters because he believes that we're doing it the right way. He, he has bought into the, the value system that I've shared with him that we believe in. And we look through every business decision that we make through that, those values. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I believe we are opening up more water for more people. And we, again, we don't care where you come from or who you are, as long as you're a responsible land steward, come fish our properties. At the end of the day, you going back to the ease of access argument that we talked about earlier, not argument, but just point that we made earlier in the podcast, we're unlocking gates. And you didn't have access to unlock these gates previously. Uh, whether you're in Montana or Colorado where the high watermark laws are different, um, the access is different, right? You're, the access that you're getting in Montana is different than the access that you're getting in Colorado. Um, but that, you know... It, That's all we're doing at the end of the day is opening up more access and making it simple and easy for you to have a good time. So you spend less time waiting through eight miles of water in Montana. You just go park your truck next to the hole and have a good time.
1: And that, that was the the crux of kind of Kirk's article for sure was that he was in favor of, and he liked this model and he did talk about how it kind of was, was different from some of these past projects because of that. But that really leads into argument number two. And you just, Kind of touched on this a little bit here brendan but uh, and I think you guys will like this one, but you know over the past several years, and especially as a direct byproduct of the pandemic we 've seen it the last couple of years, there has no doubt been a massive boom in the number of anglers hitting domestic waters and and really some of america 's most well known and famous trout rivers, you know especially all throughout the west i mean they 've been hammered by by so much use and so many people, and pressure has become a very, very real concern. Um, And because of this, some would argue that opening up more fishable water, which is what you're talking about through a model like the Rare Waters Plan, even if a fee is involved and even if it starts with a nominal number of anglers, that can, in fact, alleviate some of the pressure on classic public waters. Yeah, 100%. You know, fishing pressure and, and angler habits used to... I think this is important to talk about. They used to take a backseat to things like, you know, serious quote conservation issues like like river obstructing dams, water pollution, temperature issues, anything else we've kind of historically lumped into quote conservation issues. But in the past couple of decades, especially the past couple of years, I mean I would absolutely add just pure angling pressure to that list. It has become a legitimate conservation issue throughout Western waters.
2: Well and it's good it's great for the industry, right? It's great for the sport. Um, you know, business is good, and we love getting new people into fly fishing. I mean, we, we all want people to share that feeling we get when we're on the water, right? Uh, but you're right. I mean, sitting two hours at a boat ramp to get your boat in the water is a huge pain in the butt. Or going to places like Cheeseman Canyon where there's an angler every 20 yards, and they're high-holing you, and the etiquette is bad. That's not fun either. Um, so being able to create more access to open up more – Experiences related to that serenity piece again is what we're all about, and the other thing, and just one other thing about landowner stuff. I mean, you guys got to remember, you have to incentivize the landowner the right way, and to open up like that. None of these, most of these, not none of them, most of these landowners do not make money off of their property, and if you look at what it take, like a P and L to see what it what it costs to manage a ranch, you'd be shocked. Just to pay the taxes. Just to pay taxes and just like to, to mow down their hay meadows and ma- maintain their capital equipment. And, um, again, incentivizing landowners in order to make – for them to open up their gates and open up their doors is is not something the government does very well, um, and it's something that we're trying to trying to solve for.
3: Yeah, and, and I would say even the impact on the – riparian habitat and the fisheries themselves, right? With this huge influx of people coming, you know, I've, I've been in the industry for a long time and it's a love-hate relationship, right? You want, you want like as a capitalist, you wanna grow and see our industry thrive. And I and Brendan have just like a uh, personal conviction that we wanna see mom and pa fly shops thrive, right? Brick and mortar is such a tough business to be in. We wanna see our industry elevate from all brands and and really celebrate the you know the ability for us to go catch trout on a fly like what an incredible incredible thing that we can share with others um but at the same side of it you don't want to share your secret spots and to pull outs and all that stuff and and i truly believe rare waters comes with a solution to to help with that in a way that not only improves like an overall experience, especially for like women and children coming in the industry, or, or those who've never even um, tried fly fishing for the first time, right? What a different experience it is when you show up at a public place when you're elbow to elbow with somebody else and the f- trout are so. <laughs> Keen in on your flies, and if you're not using six or seven x dip it, uh, you know, like you th- that tough experience. It's, it's yeah. a tough, yeah, it's tough. It was like when the whole Tenkara thing came out, right? There was everyone was pooing it, but the reality was, is you got a ton of rad women and children and folks that just have never fished before into trout, right? Like there's something to be said for it. um And rare waters comes alongside as a solution to be like, hey, like we are showing up differently, and we're here to support one another and bring more more folks in, in, into the industry or those that just want to get away um, and really tap that serenity aspect that a lot of folks come into our space to begin with. So.
1: I think it's, it, it, you brought up a good point in that what is good for the business of fly fishing, for the fly fishing industry, isn't always good for the experience of fly fishing if you're an angler looking for that solitude. And I think that's the thing we're really wrestling with right now um, but you also need voices for the resources if you're going to hope to protect them and and enhance them in the long run and and there's a a gentleman here in montana named hal herring who's a known montana author he's a longtime champion of public access here in montana he actually was recently quoted in the new york times uh, and talking about stream access issues. And he said that if you preserve biodiversity at the cost of public access, eventually you will lose it all because in two to three generations, people will forget why anybody cared in the first place. And so it's the thing that I think the, the business of fly fishing, the fly fishing industry itself is constantly trying to weigh. How do you introduce more people to the sport? How do you you know, make the business of fly fishing healthy? How do you create volume and the number of voices that are willing to speak up for and, and, and act out for the resources, you know, for wild fish, for, for access issues, for clean water? You know, people fight for and speak up for what they care about and they care about what they are involved in and what they participate in. And so it is that, that balance, right, of you don't want so many people doing it that it completely degradates the experience of being on the water. But at the same time, you do need numbers, if if you know the resources we care about, and if if conservation has any chance in in the modern day, um, you know theater in which we're all operating in.
2: So well, it's a it's you know. a good call out to uh, another Bozeman-based company, Perk. I don't know if you're familiar with Perk, but that'd be a good good study for them to go check out. I um I don't I don't I'm not sophisticated enough to to figure out all those numbers, but I'd be kind of curious to see how that would work in in one of their analyses
1: yeah no, for sure. For sure. Well, I'll throw out the last argument. And this is uh, this came from a comment section. I think it was on, on Kirk's article, right? So this is somebody who's like, we've heard this before. And this is, quote, no matter how rare waters tries to spin it, we're adopting the UK and European model of pay-to-play fishing. And public water anglers are fed up with entities selling and shoving this feel-good nonsense down our throats. The precedence of this model being portrayed as being, quote, okay, only makes the public water access issue more challenging and more difficult down the road i'm sure you guys read this thoughts and and how you would respond to that
2: yeah i mean look we we're not silly enough or naive enough to believe that we're going to cater to everybody i mean no business can cater to everyone so um what we know is that we're and we believe that we're opening up more access for more people candidly indirectly that gentleman or gal is hopefully knock on wood going to have a better more secluded fly fishing experience on the public watersheds that he or she may be fishing because more people are going to come fish with us the other thing i'd say is um you know we are impacting conservation again we were to use uh industry partner of the year that's something that's front and center in everything that we do um and then lastly i'd end with you know if that person doesn't like what we're doing. That's okay. Come check us out, and and I think you'll probably be pleasantly surprised with with our experience that we that we offer. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's hard to cater towards uh, the entire fly fishing demographic, if you will. I'm sure you appreciate that being a business owner. Um, and yeah, I mean again, I, I don't believe in the European model. We're not a club. We're not a membership-based organization. All we're doing is, in my humble opinion, appropriately incentivizing landowners to unlock their gate. Um, which again, I don't think the, the the publicly run organizations do well at all. And then opening up more access for anglers to have a great time. And it happens to be on
3: fantastic pieces of water. We can't guarantee yeah. incredible fishing every day, but the opportunity is definitely there. Some of our properties are rival the hundred thousand dollar clubs and lodges that that are well known around the world. Like we are super proud with the properties that we vet out. It's not like we're going after and land grabbing any property any any curious landowner that wants to say hey i'd love to monetize my my land or my property i'd love for you guys to come alongside i think i have some okay fishable water like we really vet the properties that we have so the you know the 60 or so properties we're on target to have 100 by the end of the year um they are very well um vetted out to make sure that not only is a great fishery but it, it provides an experience that you can't really put your finger on you know it's just the whole package that that where waters provides as a product you know for, for people to experience um, is something super special that i'm really proud about and and we are we are disrupting the industry and there's there's a lot of you know arguments that 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 you've just brought up but at, at the end of the day you know we are not putting up fences or tall gates by any means what we're doing is we're actually blowing them down and we're doing it at a very inclusive affordable price for the average joe or the average jill to come along and
2: access something that has never been touched before yeah so, you would you wouldn't be able to access these properties anyway so um yeah i mean it's it's a weird dichotomy honestly it's a it's a double-edged sword and um if, if you weren't going to be able to access it anyway why are you upset about it? Um, you know I understand you might want to go to the state capitol building and, and overturn the legislation, but we're not doing anything illegal here we're we're, <laughs> we're just we're trying to open up more access and um for more people so well and and
1: I like uh I, I went and checked out your website and looked at some of the videos on rare waters. You talked about how every one of these properties is vetted. You go there and experience them. Uh, the video shows a couple of your team members who actually have this job and they, they look like they are, uh, are doing it well. They're yeah. really enjoying yeah. their time on these waters and they're fishing. Uh, yeah. It and, Cause they, at yeah. the end of
3: the day, we're, we're catering to our, like, we're, we're our best customer, right? Yeah. Like we know our target customer is us. And if, we're not having that incredible experience, and that you know it—it it, it has to check all those boxes. Um, and you know we have currently right now we have three sales reps and i say that quote-unquote sales reps we actually don't call them sales reps but they're actually called landowner partnership reps and it's really because it's a partnership with the landowner it's a long long long-term play we're in it for the long haul uh, with some of these families that we partner with and they just happen to have the the great job and kind of the perks of their gig is they have to go vet the properties so they get to go fish these properties for instance we just we opened one up in northern california um Probably four months ago, five months ago, um, incredible piece of water. And the last time that it was fished that the lander knew of was Uncle Bob, you know, or Uncle Uncle Jerry from eight years ago it was the last time it was ever fished. So the first customers that actually got, went and accessed this property in California that we opened were literally the first people to t- touch this water. See so these trout. I mean, you can imagine the experience that the, that the that the folks. Um, kind of were first to the gates, uh, so to speak. So I highly recommend not as a plug for the business, but, um, the video you mentioned, uh, you can really kind of get, uh, lay the feel of some of the properties that we have, um, and a little bit of further into our story. And then, you know, you can sign up for a newsletter. And as soon as a new property that we unlock, um, it, first get sent to everyone on our email list. And you can have kind of first dibs if you wanna go check out a property that may or may not have n- never been fished before or a decade ago. So it's it's a pretty neat experience.
1: Well, let me ask you guys this. How are, are local fly shops? Because RJ, you brought up fly shops and, and being supporters of the mom and pop, you know, kind of brick and mortar businesses. Yeah. How are local fly shops and retailers reacting so far to the rare waters concept? Have, uh, you know, some may have had lease opportunities or handshake access to waters that they feel may now be threatened by this model if, if there's now a, a, a pay incentive. Uh, others may support it any
3: any feedback or i guess actual blowback from retailers yeah, to date on yeah, this that's a great question i that we you know it's first time ever just this year that we've really built a pretty big awareness play and really shared our story because i me coming from the in from the fly fish industry for over a decade i didn't even know what rare waters was or who they were because they were in such they were you know in just outside of the ideation phase of the business and really just starting to put, put stakes in the ground. Um, and the industry adoption has been overwhelmingly supportive. Once they figure out who we are, there's obviously like the industry has been so public land, like we're all public landowners and it's all building about public land, public land, public land, um, you know, private's the enemy and, and all that. And the reality is, is once they actually hear about what we're doing, um, the, the market adoption within our industry has been nothing but supportive. So so now – and that includes brick-and-mortar fly shops. So we started a fly shop program, kind of piloted a program and uh, where fly shops, if they're willing um, – we partner with fly shops just like we partner with landowners. They can put up a little POP, point-of-purchase uh, display, and it's essentially an iPad where – customers can come into the shop um and we want to bring foot traffic into the door for fly shop owners right because I'm a huge believer of it and keeping the industry alive i think a bulk of it um and kind of that special sauce is with the mom and pa, uh fly shops and the experience that anglers have but they you know we just provide a little pop ipad type deal and customers can book a property right then and there and we're huge proponents that you know, every fly shop and all the employees of the fly shop and all the, you know, fly shop kids and so forth, you know, we want them to actually go experience the properties that are in their local community. And so the best advocates are those who are in the front lines of the industry, you know, so, and and we're not opposed to guy, you know, guide trips and all that. Um We, you know, it's just another way, you know, we offer a do-it-yourself alien experience that this is just another opportunity for folks to get on on incredible pieces of water. And so we've had a little bit of blowback in the beginning but to be honest once they figure out our business model and see the legitimacy and kind of what we're standing for in the industry um we've been welcomed with open arms so and then obviously there's always naysayers and stuff but once they actually experience it firsthand and they see really what our business model is about um it's been overwhelmingly supportive within the fly fish industry and then the greater outdoor industry as a whole and i would even say in the experiential side so like the experiential side of business so the airbnbs VRBOs, hip camps of the world um yellow dog you know like it's been a it's been a inquisitive and then once they figure out who we are and what we're about and our values they're like oh this makes a lot of sense and i wish i thought of it
2: yeah and i take that a step further and once they figure out our business model they're more comfortable with it but also they learn who we are um yeah you know we 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 talk the talk. We also walk the walk. So you know, I think that's important. We we say we do what we, we – sorry. We do what we say. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's – at the end of the day, it comes down to, to – val- everything comes down to values in business, I think. And, um, yeah, we, we we hold our values very dear. And those values are integrity, trust, respect, honesty, and reverence. Reverence is kind of a play on that uh, connection with the outdoors. But um, yeah, it's just been—I'd say we had mixed reviews until people got to know us on the fly shop side of things, and then when once they got to experience what we're all about and who we are, they're they're buying into it. Yeah,
3: and uh, and the larger brands in the industry—I won't name any names—but you can figure it out pretty quickly. Um, we've had a ton of support from, you know, fly rod companies, reel companies, line companies, flies, um, and travel experiential companies it's been a it's been an overwhelming overwhelmingly supportive and we're really stoked to 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 kind of do it and i would say even with the naysayers i think as an industry disruptor that's just part of the game right any any time you're shaking it up you're shaking up this whole idea of the club membership and the upper one percent of the tenth of one percent of the you know the fly fish industry that has i believe is kind of hindered the industry as a whole. Um you know we 're shaking that up, and it 's kind of fun and exciting to kind of disrupt that so i 'm super excited to see what comes in the next couple of years.
1: Well, you guys look like you 're having fun that 's for sure yeah. that 's good Well, yeah. let me ask you this: where do you see rarewater 's business model? going let's say 10 years from now i know the the near future goal is to continue to add more premier properties to continue to build out the catalog and the options for people to uh you know to find through the site but you know if you were to look into a crystal ball and say 10 years from now what would you like the company to be known for where would you like to be sitting
2: yeah i mean well that's a just one point on the last question too is um i think guides are great at being a entry point to the sport for a lot of people, right? They they teach people fly fishing's hard. It's just like any other technical sport. Um and they they're good teachers, which is a very strong skill set. I don't know how to teach people well anyway. Um and those those guides, we believe that we can provide access for we don't care if you're a guide and you want to bring people to our properties, please do. And if that makes your guide experience better for your clients by all means, please please feel free to do that. So that's one thing that we would like to get to in the uh, in the future. The second thing I would say is, you know, in business, it's easy to go chase after a bunch of shiny objects and and get unfocused. Uh, for the next three to five years, we're going to remain very focused on our core competency, which is opening up more access for more people all across the United States. We see the business as a national opportunity. Uh, granted, I, I totally understand the varying access laws by state, Um, But, again, to kind of close back up to what we talked about earlier, it's about ease of access. It's about um, anybody who's a responsible land steward being able to go access a great stretch of water. um, And we believe that that there's a national opportunity here for that. Yeah. I mean, to not, you know,
3: over-speak here, but... We've had a lot of interest in folks outside of the West of the Rockies. Um, we've had a lot of folks from the East Coast saying, "Hey, if we, I've got some property. I'd love for you to come check it out. We've incredible pieces of property." And we've been very. We've had a lot of mentors, and both Brandon and I have had a, you know, from our from our board to a bunch of mentors in the industry and beyond have been advising us really stick with your core competency, really unlock that and figure that out before you stretch yourself too thin. And we've really stuck to that. You know, we could get into bass, you know, there's so many like bass fishing alone is massive, right? Um, There's, there's so many opportunities have been kind of presented to us or kind of ideas that we've kicked around and we've just been really advised against chasing after those shiny balls, like Brendan, Brendan speaks of because, you know, a lot of times entrepreneurs and, you know, small startups, they have a lot of these shiny balls that they go after and they kind of lose their core and they lose they lose a bit of their identity. And we are you know, we hold each other accountable and the board does as well, of just being really focused on what we do well. And if we can really unlock that and build that critical mass and prove that business model, the world's the world's our oyster, so to speak. And so so we've been very, very focused in in what that is, and that currently right now is you know is a four hour drive from from Denver, right? Has has been a been you know southern Wyoming, all all most of Colorado, you know, has been really our core focus, and we have you know we'll have we're targeting uh, roughly fifty to sixty properties by the end of the year, and just that zone alone, which really does build legitimacy in that area and builds a critical mass and then once we model that out and we're really successful and really are poised to really take that to a national level um that is pretty much our goal so we we have we're targeting 100 properties by the end of this year we'll have roughly 200 by the end of next year and then you know see where it goes yeah it could be very interesting where it goes but we're really excited to, with all the support and uh, um, business opportunity that we have. And it just happens that we're just unlocking doors and we get to fish some amazing water. So, go. so we'd have a little fun along the way. Well, Jim, what it's I'm about. curious,
2: what about you? What do you think about it?
3: Well, I, you know, we started the, uh, the intro
1: to this podcast with um, kind of a little bit of a recap of... Um, The stream access issues and especially as they pertain to the western u.s and it is a complicated issue it's a highly politicized issue and as you said a moment ago rj you know this has been an industry that's really always about public access and it's something that our industry very much needs because that's what keeps people on the water and keeps them engaged but you have to weigh that and i think it goes back to kirk dieter's article that i thought was very very well written and that hey the fact of the matter is we are dealing with You know, never before experienced levels of pressure, numbers of anglers on the water, and that's probably not going away anytime soon. And so um, as an industry, as a sport, as just, you know, involved, passionate individual anglers, we all need to look at um, really kind of all different types of scenarios moving forward. Pressure is not getting any less, you know, people coming out to the West wanting to have that experiential, you know, on water type, you know, fishing moment or or backwoods moment if you're hunting or just out, you know, backpacking, whatever it is, that's becoming more and more important to people. And with that, the numbers are only going to go up. So finding unique, innovative solutions that might not be, you know, as a standalone project, the answer, but it is one answer. It is one element that we're all going to look at, uh, you need to look at moving forward. There's no doubt about it. But it's a complicated issue. Um, It's been great talking with you guys about this I think you bring some really interesting perspective to it and uh, I wish you well with rare waters it's uh I am impressed that it's different than what we've seen in the past and and there's been so many of these different membership type clubs and and uh you know annual dues and, and you know tall fences as, as Kirk wrote about in his article um, this is different um it, it'll be interesting to see how it continues to grow but I wish you guys well and uh I look forward to, to following along no doubt about it Appreciate
2: it, man. Yeah,
3: Thank you, Jim.
1: Well, thank you guys for being here today. It's been a great conversation. Uh, And that is it for the latest episode of Waypoints, the podcast that is 100% dedicated to travel, destination angling, and the search for adventure. Be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com to plan and research travel, source gear, equipment, and flies for your next destination, and stay up to date on the latest angling news and developments. Join us for our next episode, and remember, life is short and no one ever regretted, a life of adventure.
0: This has been another episode of Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing, travel, and adventure angling. Waypoints is produced by Brian Gregson with music provided by the Steep Canyon Rangers. Visit yellowdogflyfishing.com for more destination profiles, travel news, and expert advice. And be sure to join us for our next episode.